Welcome to Tailwinds, the podcast for Air and Space Operations Review. I'm Dr. Laura Thurston Goodrow, and today we are visiting with Anessa Kimball, the author of Canada's Open Door on 9-11, Adapting NORAD, in our winter 2022 issue. Dr. Kimball is a professor of political science and director of the Center for International Security at the School of Advanced International Studies at Laval University in Quebec City. Professor Kimball uses quantitative methods and rational institutionalist approaches to examine the institutional design of defense and security cooperation arrangements and defense burden sharing. They are the author of Beyond 2%, NATO Partners, Institutions, and Burden Management, Concepts, Risks, and Models, released in print in January. Anessa, welcome to Tailwinds. Thank you. Good morning. So first of all, please tell us a little bit about your interest in the subject of North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, as most of us know it. Yes, I came to studying NORAD a little bit, I would say, backwards, one might say. My my initial interest was actually in formal security and defense agreements, such as NATO and formal alliances. And when I moved to Canada, one of the things that um, I became interested in more and more is the fact that a lot of the Canadian discourse about military pretty much invokes either NATO or NORAD. And so as I started looking at NORAD and learning more about it, it became quite interesting because it's an agreement that started out quite informally and we see now what it is in its actual operational structure and we've obviously recently seen what it does and so to me this was um, interesting from an institutional perspective trying to learn how informal institutions can become more formalized over time and take on what would be as most people um, think of it as actually a treaty and so that's how I came to study uh, NORAD. And then the interest in 9-11 kind of followed on as a pre- in a project I was working on that was actually on a NORAD institutional adaptation. Very interesting. So to 9-11, since that's what you kind of use as a framework, I remember it distinctly. I am that old. But a lot of us, including me, um, are not aware of the impact it had on Canada and the many ways Canadians actually helped avert what could have been a global commercial air disaster when the U.S. abruptly closed its airspace that morning. Um, I found it really interesting. And so I'd like you to tell us some more about that. Mm -hmm. And so as I was doing research on NORAD renewals, there were renewals in 1996, in 2000, and in 2006. And obviously, during that period, we saw some quite large changes to the international system. And so just that as a context to understanding how the agreement changed was quite interesting. And as I got into doing the field research, um, of course, one of the things you would ask about during that period in retrospect, when I was doing this fieldwork in 2013 is of 9-11. And as the story started to unfold, I realized that there really was this side story that happened that Americans really were not tuned into. And of course, I'm an American. I was doing my doctoral studies. I was in the middle of New York State at SUNY Binghamton. And so to me, this had passed pretty much as a a story within a story that we didn't really appreciate. And as I saw kind of doing the field research, this story actually 
as this unfolded, a couple of mechanisms happened afterwards, as we know, and Canada was able to use the goodwill that it had kind of created in managing this mini mobility crisis to modify the agreement. And so, of course, I found the story quite captivating and I had the opportunity to interview um, you know, the people that were making the decisions like David Cullinette, like Rick Finley, you know, who would have been, uh, you know, literally right there having the communications uh, in the moment. And so kind of piecing together this timeline and really telling the narrative while also unfolding how it was possible because of the institutional differences between how the U.S. and how Canada manages their airspace. And so to me, that was really part of trying to pull this apart uh, in some senses, but also make it accessible to readers. And especially, you know, those of us, like you, like you said, you know, who kind of we lived nine, lived through 9-11. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, particularly that work in international security and defense, you know, it was something like the end of the Cold War that really, you know, was a shock to how we think about a lot of things, including uh, North Atlantic and North American defense. Yes, it really was. It was the most profound thing that's happened in my lifetime. I know that. So again, I was really interested in, you know, I encourage readers when they go back to read through your article to kind of get some of that, you know, on the ground history, the, the, you know, redirecting flights and flights landing. In, yes. Um, Newfoundland, was it Newfoundland? Or yes. They- and so as it happened, basically, um, as we know, um, in the U.S., we were watching kind of everything unfold on television. And as when the United States closed its airspace, it did this, obviously, because there was a national security threat. These thr- these planes, um, as I explain uh, in uh, the text, you know, these planes had come from a civilian air source, which was not something that the military had normally practiced. You know, this was something that was really out of the box for thinking about what might be used as a weapon, you know, even though we would learn later that some of these threads of what what might happen was going on, I think what's really clear in the narrative and the reflection of the narrative by the stakeholders at the moment is essentially that, you know, there was a terrorist threat, but how it would manifest itself was really unclear. And so in that moment of on the day in the morning when the U.S. closed its airspace, this was, you know, a, a decision that was extremely important, obviously, as there was a crisis going on. And we were watching, you know, literally in, um, you know, a day which was very tragic where thousands of Americans and thousands of international citizens lost their lives. There was this other crisis that happened when the air airspace closed because all of these flights that were over the Atlantic and uh, mostly over the Atlantic, somewhat over the Pacific, but over the Atlantic because it was AM on the East Coast, all of these flights flights were stuck in the air. You know, the U.S. basically said, you know, you're not welcome. <laughs> We're closing our airspace. And, you know, you can imagine that all of a sudden the Brits and the Canadians, you know, were looking at the North Atlantic saying, OK, now we have a job to do. And so in the end, as Colleen explains, um, Nav Canada with the Brits took those 239 flights. They analyzed every single flight individually, determined. Well, actually, there were more than 600 flights at the time that were in the air. They were able to return more than half of the flight. That was one thing that we, we were extremely grateful for that. And, you know, literally there was no other loss of life in civilian aviation that day because those people, you know, managed that so expertly. And so, you know, so quickly it was it was seamless. I mean, obviously, for travelers on that day, you know, 
it was a shock. Landing right. in Canada, I'm sure, must have been quite right. a shock. <laughs> um, and, you know, what happened as they analyzed these flights, obviously there were some that they had been held in the air for a while. So some were becoming extremely close um, to being in danger, which is how Goose Bay and, and Gander, Newfoundland became, became, you know, Goose Bay is a, an Air Force's base that had these long runways from World War II that had been maintained. And so these planes could land there, which is kind of shocking if you think about it, you know, bringing in these large modern airliners into yeah. a, a very small, you know, um, you know, it's a, a, arguably a secondary, even tertiary <laughs> military. And then, you know, simply the massive job, as we know now, of what would have been screening and hosting and, you know, reconnecting all of these people onto their various destinations after they came to Canada. And it was done in a matter of three to five days, more or less, which is also amazing. And, you know, this this really happened because of the institutional structures and because those that that trust really existed already. And so when the U.S. made that decision, you know, Canada and the Brits stepped in, they landed the flight, things were managed. Um, and of course, there were some things that didn't actually make it into the text, which I found, which, you know, um, there's a little bit of a story about a Korean Airlines flight that actually had to be escorted by NORAD fighters that morning because, in fact, the pilot and co-pilot did not speak enough English. And so they didn't understand when they were told they could no longer go to Seattle. Wow. And so this is a whole side story that, you oh know, um, which is fascinating. And so literally what happened is you can imagine, you know, they're they're calling this flight and they're saying you can no longer, you know, obviously they know that they can no longer land. Um, and then they're trying to contact the flight. And at the time, of course, another side story is that this communication was also happening um, through um, more uh, secrets. You know, it was actually going through Morse code at the, at the moment because, you know, they had hijacked planes at those moments. We didn't actually know if they they were into the aviation communication systems internationally. And so, you know, you can imagine how this is going. And there was a very tense moment because it was actually supposed to go to Vancouver. And once they started having the communication issues, they redirected it to Yellowknife. And so really? it landed. Oh, my yes. gosh. <laughs> because, of course, they had no idea what was going on. Right. The, wow. It was difficult to communicate with the pilots. That's a long ways from nowhere. <laughs> Exactly. Right. And so you can imagine how, you know, the, the decision was literally immediately made like, OK, we don't know if this is part of what's going on. The information environment was so sparse at the time. It was in, you know, let's take as few risks as possible. And so land this flight in Yellowknife. It was met, you know, on the runway, police, all emergency in these poor passengers and pilots coming off. And they're just a bit confused. You know, they're expecting to be in oh Seattle. They're in Northern Canada. And so, you know, these are some of the side stories that were extremely rich that you can you can't put in those things. But um, I mean, to me, this is one of the reasons why I found that this was really it was a story that was not told on 9-11 um, very much to our American colleagues. And in the aftermath, there were a couple things that happened which were extremely important. Of course, the binational planning cell emerged. It became a binational planning group. And because you may also recall, this is also not in the text, but at the time, there was also a rumor right after 9-11 that some of these terrorists had passed through Canada into I do remember the United that. States, yeah, right? It, that, it ended yeah. up being completely false, right? It was, a, it was an extremely large piece of disinformation. And so 
um, as I was doing the interviews, this was like pretty much uh, spontaneously brought up by many of the interviewees, even though I never brought it up as an interviewer. And so again, that that piece really changed the willingness in Ottawa because they understood all of a sudden that this relationship that they had, you know, they had been fostering and taking care of since the 1930s, 1938 with Ogdensburg, you know, all of a sudden there was a little bit of risk at it. And not only that, but like NORAD was at risk, which to the Canadians is extremely important in terms of understanding the United States, communicating with the United States, being there to get that information, you know, as we know, um, some of the tasks that NORAD does. For the Canadians, it's it's a link that's kind of essential for their national security and for their defense. But on the other hand, you know, in the United States, I think it's often something that, you know, of course, a very punny here goes under the radar. Um, we don't talk about it very much. And again, that was one of the things that was interesting in the fact that through the renewals, because it was so important and became very foundational to both countries in these reflections after 9-11, NORAD was able to kind of uh, save itself in some senses from becoming, from being placed on the wayside, which could have been very much happened in that period with George Bush, who was extremely, um, you're with us or you're against us. <laughs> you know, those types of discourses were very frightening up here in Canada. There was a lot of, we need to make sure that there is a, a solid place for this institution in North American defense and in North American security. And so one of the ways it did that through recommendation by the BPG was that NORAD enlarged its mandate to include include maritime situational warning and awareness. And so uh, we didn't change the name, but we went to an entirely new domain, which was extremely interesting. And one of the things I explored in the interviews was also was also was the fact that it was limited to warning and awareness, particularly because of the stakeholder issue that they felt that going beyond into command and control brought in Coast Guards, brought in navies, which complicated the NORAD concept, which was always a concept of putting in the key stakeholders, kind of trying to depoliticize it. And so to me, I thought that these this mentality of thinking was extremely consistent with then later um, when the Canadians, when NORAD became an agreement in perpetuity, that it is no longer renewed. It goes through a review every four years or by request, but it's no longer renewed. And that literally removes it from a lot of political angst, mostly in Ottawa, but it also, you know, one might say kind of saves it a little bit from becoming a weapon, one might say, in D.C. And so it exists. It has a place. It has a role that's very clear. And I think what we saw just last week was how adaptable and dynamic that role is when it comes to this cross section of what NORAD does, which includes what we saw, this monitoring of the air balloon, because um, NOAA literally is also has uh, a seat at the headquarters there in Cheyenne. And so you have the National Oceans uh, and Atmosphere Agency right there because one of NORAD's mandates is also essentially involved monitoring the weather and crises that can occur because of the weather and what that means uh, and military implications. And so I think that one thing, uh, what we saw last week uh, with the spy balloon was yeah. very interesting yeah. because it brings all of this together in a way that I think we don't normally think think about in defense and security. And I think this also highlights something else that is emerging in terms of our reflections is the fact that the the climate change, defense, North American, all of that aspect kind of comes together right there underneath NORAD, right? right. right. Um, and so like the, this was a weather balloon 
but was also clearly a surveillance balloon, right? Its path was tracked and, you know, modeled and predicted. You can look at all of the various visuals that are available. What was interesting, a couple of things I found quite interesting is that the media coverage didn't actually become nationalized or international until it got to Montana, yes. which means that it went all the way across Canada first. Yes. <laughs> I, I was curious about that, you know, and I was thinking about this and last week and your, you know, your article came to mind immediately. And I was like, you know, I wonder about that. And I wonder about, I, so my, we lived in Colorado Springs, so I'm familiar with Trian Mountain and NORAD. And uh, I was thinking there's lots of activity happening there. There's been lots of activity, but you're right. You know, media is one thing. What we knew is obviously something different, but interesting, like just, I'm sort of interested about conversations, you know, that happen preceding what came out in the media. So, you know, there's all this coordination going on at NORAD that mm -hmm. we're just really unaware of that exactly. I think is binational, as you point out, yeah. which is, you know, again, from a lay perspective, I think a lot of people just take that for granted. And oh. um, I just thought it was, it was very interesting. Yeah. And I think one of the other things is, you know, um, this really touches on the fact that, you know, NORAD is really monitoring very a lot of things at the same time when you're there. You know, if whenever has the opportunity to to go there into the headquarters, you, you, you see, you know, not only how impressive it is, but you see that literally this communication is quite seamless, you know, between the Canadians and the Americans. And there really is this kind of shared view at what the objective is. And the text, of course, one of the things I think most people people don't know is that on 9-11, actually, the Canadian was uh, running NORAD at NORAD in the day because the American was actually in Washington. So functionally, on the day of NORAD, actually, the, the, the commander of NORAD was a Canadian, which is another thing that I think, you know, does not get much media attention, but deserves a little bit of credit uh, minimally. Yeah, um, I and I think that that demonstrates that, I mean, almost the fact that nobody knows it demonstrates the fact how, of how seamless it is and how this cooperation really occurs, you know, minute to minute. And, you know, and so what we saw was this air balloon, which NORAD had been tracking it. And since it was released and started going over Russia, um, it traveled through Alaska. And so, of course, it was in America when it was in Alaska. But again, we did not get that information until it was over Billings, Montana. Why did we learn when it was over Montana? I have an idea why. It's because that is where some of our ballistic missile defenses are in that area. Yes. Um I also have an idea why they were interested in its path, um, which could have taken it near such places as Norfolk, which would also be extremely interesting for the Chinese and possibly the Russians. So, you know, I think that as somebody who, uh, you know, can kind of line up some of these things, there are good reasons for why probably that information, you know, uh, they waited until it was kind of spotted more in public and it became more in the public eye before they kind of acknowledged it. It existed and right. then and then tracked it. And well, you, the, you have to, in truth, you exactly you've got to you got to give it some time to information gathering. <laughs> The, well, I mean, there were good. Obviously, there were. Yeah. yeah well, there and the, well, there's good reasons also to not um, because there there was no idea. We didn't really know what was in it, what was on it. So there was right. good reasons to right. not try to shoot it down over any sort of territory. Right. Um, which was why they they it was eventually downed um in the waters, but and on the it was basically on the continental shelf, quite easy for everything to be recuperated. So it was. I think it was very strategic when they chose to down it, where they chose um to shoot it down. You can also see, you know, essentially it was tracked from 
um, you know, the the flight paths are available from the the jets that were literally live tracking it when it was coming over. So you can see that it was very clear, you know, we had our eye on it as it was watching, yes, <laughs> looking below, yes. you know, and I think that this is part of what securing this North uh, in the North American airspace is about is that there is this, you know, the seamless defense that happens, the knowledge that passes. And so, you know, some people, you know, I had some media interest saying, you know, um, to what extent is it like a national security risk? You know, um, this is not the first balloon. There were actually over th- at least three balloons last year. Right. There was an, there's another balloon current that was um, in Latin America. So, yep. you know, this is this is not like a new something new from the Chinese right. um, in some senses. And so I think what is interesting to me, at least, is that it brought NORAD kind of onto the, the you know, back into the, yeah. the, the political interest. You know, what is NORAD? What does it do? And I think what is interesting is that um, as somebody that studies burden sharing for NORAD, what it does and what it provides relative to security organizations like NATO, you know, I think it is a very good bargain. Um, for what it's doing and how yeah. it operates. Um, yeah. And I think that that's also something that's a little bit the untold story or the undersold story of NORAD yeah. um, is that we have this institution that's extremely important. And so in the next you know, six six months to a year, um, NORAD is facing modernization demands. It must modernize some of its assets. There's going to be a lot of kind of bargaining and talking about, you know, one thing that is under um, that is important in this modernization is the fact that the initial design for NORAD was, you know, looking towards what was then the Soviet Union, right? So we had a right. posture that was very different than the posture NORAD needs today, which frankly needs to focus a lot more in the Pacific. And so I would, you know, equally in the Pacific, I would say. And so when you look at NORAD, you do see that there is this, and you know, it's because of historical relations with Europe. It's because in the 1950s, this was where the threat was coming from. And so some of this reflection about NORAD modernization will have to include this Western portion. The challenge for Canada is that that is also the area of the country where um, there's going to be the most challenges if they're wanted to put in assets in Canada, where there's going to be the most challenges to place them politically. And so how will this yeah. work out? You know, will Canada and the United States decide to do NORAD modernization through fixed things? Is there going to be a mix of fixed and mobile? And then we also have this piece coming in that's extremely important and very strong with the Finns and Swedes um, now coming much closer to Canada and the U.S. by joining NATO. Right. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, this completes that arc, um, yeah. you know, over the north um, that is extremely important. Right. Um, and right. so, you know, in the next six to 12 months, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how we kind of adapt and how we integrate more fully the Finns and the Swedes, you know, into NATO. It's it's going to happen. It's, it's right. a matter of time yeah. very much. And what that's going to look like, you know, on kind of the Arctic exactly. and exactly. the North that's American end. And so I think it's an exciting time if you're somebody who's interested in NATO, somebody who's interested in NORAD. There's always something I I like teaching about it. Um, you know, we didn't even talk at all about the strategic defense aspect and all of the challenges through strategic defense. The story today was really just about that, that slice right. about 9-11 and how NORAD became a more permanent institution and how NORAD kind of anchored itself in North America in a way that, frankly, no other institution has, right. which I think also, you know, speaks to, as, you know, William says, you know, you're being connected at the hip uh, in the North America. Well, it's interesting, too, because I think, you know, when we 
in the defense in defense circles, we tend to think externally, you know, rather than internally. And we sort of there's some level of thought that people don't think about Canada. Canada's kind mm-hmm. of like always there. They're they're just kind of one part of us, which I know drives Canadians crazy. But you know, we don't think about US Northcom, for example, in the same nearly as often as we might think about Yukon or Africom or Indo. Exactly. And, and it's just not a, even among, you know, unless you're it, unless you're at Northcom, there tends to be more of that external focus, which, you know, that's a different job unless, you know, there's mobilized troops in the United States, obviously defense is external, right? Internal Mm -hmm. is police. And, but I think Canada again, gets kind of sucked into that internal (laughs) policing, not you know, mindset that, that it's internal. Well, it's because also, frankly, Canada's Canada, Canadian armed forces have mandates that they have to do that. They have to do disaster relief. Oh, um, and, so, you know, this is this is literally in their forces mandate. So, uh, again, I'm an American. And so when I came to Canada, you know, I got up here and it's a very different relationship with your armed forces, because, frankly, right. in the United States and in a lot of, you know, Latin American countries, if you see your military in the streets, there's maybe a revolution or a coup d'etat right. going on. <laughs> right. You know, right. and in Canada. Canada, if you see soldiers, it's because there's a flood somewhere or there's a blizzard, a pandemic, (laughs) you know. And so I think that that's that's one thing that's very different about these two um, military kind of the mandates of the Mm -hmm. the two actors. But one thing that we are seeing, and of course, we saw this in the pandemic as well, is that that line is becoming increasingly, you know, um, minimalized and in countries like Canada, in a lot of our NATO partners, it is by necessity because right. they don't have those large militaries. They don't have, they have to kind of multiple task these people because, I mean, frankly, they're very highly trained emergency professionals yeah, at the bottom line, you know? Sure. You know, I think that that's one thing that we have to remember is that, like, you know, um, our the military forces are the end of the sword, right? And they're also the shield. Right. But for a lot of countries at the end of the day, these are also, you know, emergency professionals that are trained that have a very specific special set of skills, you know, and when you think about all of the things that people do to train in the military, so many of those things cross over with emergency disaster rescue, all of that, uh, you know. And so I think that, you know, this is what our, you know, our allies think of as being efficient and effective and economies of scale, right? And so, right. you know, kind of how the American perception of it is like, oh, you have them do that, then maybe they're not specialized enough. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, kind of, I see both of the arguments, but, you know, I think that the, the interest thing is that you brought up is the whole idea that, you know, we don't talk about Northcom and NORAD very much because it doesn't get very much action because, you know, it, uh, it's not a hot button region. It, and this is what we want from our institutions, right? right. Institutions, right. we want them to bring a stable equilibrium of yes. expectations of behavior. And this is what we witnessed uh, on 9-11 is that the institutions and the relations that had kind of been built between the United States and Canada over this period of 50 years, you know, really function um, in a way that none of us, you know, I mean, you know, like that none of us in the United States really thought of in retrospect, you know, I think as an institutional scholar, I found a level of comfort in the fact that in the end of the day, the job was done. There was no more civilian loss of life. It was done in peace and in order, you know. When you start thinking about just this mobility crisis, there could have been a lot of other disastrous things that kind of happened. But, 
you know, this is a side story that entirely never really unfolded because, you know, it was it was simply that's kind of the Canadian, you know, this unsung, you know, undersung role of, you know, you know Trudeau you know, has this quote where he, you know, Trudeau's father has this quote where he talks about that, you know, living next to Canada is like living next to an elephant, it's going to roll over and crush you at some point, you know, and, and, and I like to think about, you know, NORAD as an institution where Canada really tries to make space to to stop the elephant from trampling it. Yeah, and, you know, this is a you know, and this is what it did with the 2004 amendment on ballistic missile defense, where it requires the United States to consult Canada through NORAD if it ever decides to use ballistic missile defense in North America. This is very important for Canada. They're not in the command and control piece. But in Ottawa, this became very politically important as the United States decided to go forward, you know, with strategic defense. Um, and so we can see how Canada inside this institution really created that way to give itself space, to give itself consultation, you know, and I think that that's also, you know, interesting in context of 2004, which was, you know, uh, you know, a re-election cycle. It was a cycle where a lot of people, you know, there was George Bush wasn't necessarily supposed to win, one might say. And so I think it was interesting and one might say is a, a difficult bargaining environment that they managed to create that kind of protection for themselves. And so I think that also speaks a little bit to um the idea that there's that trust and confidence really comes from the, those those relations that are deep uh, become because of the Air Force's kind of key role in that whole NORAD piece. Right. You know, all of the other actors are involved. We know, you know, that all of the other pieces are involved, of course, the Army, the Navy. But really, when it comes to that, that piece, which is there is and you can't deny that. Um, and I think that that's also one of the other, you know, essential stories that you have to tell when you when you talk about NORAD, when you talk about, you know, how North American aerospace defense happens. Functional part of it is this Air Force participation. And, yeah. you know, we see how that reflects in Ottawa. We see how, you know, um, you know, NATO and NORAD are constantly invoked in Ottawa to ensure that we have fighters, to ensure that we there's mobility and all of that. And so that's also the flip side of NORAD and, and NATO is that they kind of permit Canada and allies, other allies to use these international commitments in a way um, that kind of, you know, twists the arm of maybe domestic political opposition. And so we're going to see, I think, even in the next year, more of this um, right. because all of our partners, including the United States, have uh, donated massively to this to support the Ukraine. Right. Um, right. And so there's going to be military procurement to happen. There's going to be a lot of interest in burden bargaining going on. Well, and that's what you had indicated your well, your research, your book and then your mm -hmm. research yes. on, on NATO. So there's going to be a lot of fodder for deeper examinations of all these things. So exactly. Exactly. And so, well, thank you. This did you have anything else that you wanted No, to I mean, I feel about? like we covered everything on the list. Did I miss anything? No, no, no. That's good. I, like I thought it was, we... I really enjoyed visiting with you. So thank well, you we, very much. Oh, of course. I was really great. And we look forward to reading and hearing more from you. And thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me.